Hi, this is Greg McEwen, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 737 or text Radio Free to 33444 if you're on your smartphone and in the United States. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox, so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 737, or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. This week, we're talking to Greg McEwen. Greg is somebody I have admired from afar for a long time. I have been a big fan of his philosophy of essentialism without even reading the book for a really long time. True story, I actually bought a copy of the book when it first came out, gave it to a colleague of mine who I felt needed to resonate with the message a bit stronger than than I did, and then in kind of a panic of being overloaded, bought a second copy of the book and ended up reading that. And that immediately led to me wanting to reach out to him and say, hey, would you come on this podcast? Can I ask you some questions about this essentialist idea? It's a fascinating journey, what Greg calls the disciplined pursuit of less. In other words, figuring out those things that really value and create value um, for you and pursuing those at the expense of casting aside uh, those ones that don't create as much value. It's a fascinating conversation. We talk about goals. We talk about how you structure your to-do list in order to maximize this essentialist philosophy. And really, we talk about why the disciplined pursuit of less really does bring what I would say more, what Greg would say better. So without further ado, let's get started on our interview with Greg McEwen. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Greg McEwen. Uh, I'm a writer, a researcher, a speaker, uh, and I wrote a book called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less a little while ago. And uh, this has been sort of the sum and bonum of my uh, work over the last almost 20 years. See, and I always find that interesting because you, you've become the, the quintessential essentialist, right? Um, I mean, you're, you're the one who wrote the gospel of essentialism, um, but you're also sort of its chief disciple. But this is not always the case. This, I mean, I found it interesting reading the book, and I was very, very non-essentialist in that it was probably only a couple months ago when actually on my second copy of the book, I finally opened up and read it. The way, the way it worked is I bought a copy a long time ago, I think when it first came out, and then I noticed somebody else who might need the message more, so I gave it to them, and they still haven't given it back to me. So the other day, I was, uh, I mean, the other, a couple months ago, I was kind of frustrated. And I ended up buying it again because I was like, oh, I can't wait for him to return it. I've got to actually read it. But I was relieved to find that as much as I struggle with this idea of a disciplined pursuit of less, uh, you struggled with it too for a very long time. Well, this is absolutely right. I remember um, receiving an email from my boss at the time. Uh, that said Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby because I need you to be at this client meeting with me. And Friday was, in fact, when my wife uh, went into labor. So we're in the hospital. Our baby is born. My daughter is born. She's healthy. Everybody's fine. But instead of being focused on what was clearly the important, essential uh, 
thing, I felt torn. How can I do both? How can I keep everybody happy? And so to my shame, I went to the meeting. And afterwards, I remember my boss said, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. And, you know, I don't know. If they did, the look on their faces did not evince that sort of confidence. But even if they did, uh, surely I had made a fool's bargain. And this is where I learned the basic idea, which is really stayed with me ever since. If you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And uh, that became, in hindsight, an impetus to return to certain subjects, certain principles, and also to do further research and thinking as to why it is that we do what we do. And the, 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 the outgrowth of that ultimately was essentialism. See, and what I appreciate is that the, the book itself actually chronicles your journey too. So it starts there, but it, it, it's not like, there's a lot of books on how to get more done. There's a lot of um, models and productivity tools, et cetera. This is not that. This is sort of a manual for a personal journey through this whole thing um, that you map out. I'm actually, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. So we're, we're uh, a few years out from the book now, and I'm curious to ask, um, <laughs> I don't want to ask how's it working because then you might actually confess, you know, are you doing it well or not? But I guess I, I, I want to ask before we dive into this whole thing, but is it really, is less really more is I guess the question I want to ask. Have you found it to be true? You, you outline this great, path towards achieving it. And, but you've been on that path for some time now is less really more. Well, I, I take, um, just a, just a specific distinction here. I, I don't ever say less is more. What I say is less, but better. That's fair. That was, that was, an, that was my adding less is more. No, but but it's, right. it's, it's an important, just a subtle, but important distinction. Less, but better doesn't get old. Not in my experience. Essentialism doesn't get old. It becomes more valuable the further you go. Uh, you, you know, this is quality over quantity. Do you, do you want, do I want better relationships with the right people in my life? Do I want a better relationship with my wife? Does that get old? Do I get to a point I'm like, oh, listen, I, 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 don't, I don't want a better relationship. I don't want a great relationship with my children. I, I just want lots of average relationships with loads of different people. But this doesn't get old. So I find that the disciplined pursuit of the essential is gets more rich as you proceed. And I'm not saying it gets easier because I'm not sure that's true. In fact, I, I think in a way it becomes harder, but I think it becomes more valuable over time. Uh, and so that's been, that's been my experience. I, I haven't once regretted taking the essentialist path constantly questioning and, 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 you know, not, not every so often saying, okay, well, what's important and let me remove the things that aren't important, but constantly, perpetually, endlessly doing it is something that has been powerful. I mean, we've mentioned, uh, you know, relationship with wife and children. I, I, I have learned post the book, this language of, I want, I want relationship with my wife to be, to be known in our relationship, I mean, the rest of the world, but just known as the undisputed priority relationship in my life, like, you know, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, you know, this is just undisputed. 
that's, I want it to be so clear to her. To, to, she deserves it. She's this extraordinary person, this amazing uh, friend, loyal, uh, talented, capable person. I, that, I, want to, I want to apply essentialism more now than I did in the past. So that's been my experience. Uh, that doesn't make it easy, as I said, and that might be worth exploring, but, but that's, that's what I've learned. Yeah. And that, and that, I mean, that's really, so on a personal note, uh, all of the listeners aside on a personal note, that's kind of what I, what I really wanted to hear you say, because as I read the book, um, to me, the, the crux of it, or at least the biggest challenge is this idea of explore and figuring out w- what are the vital few, um, and what are the trivial many to sort of push to the side. And the challenge is, it seems like it's one thing to go through that process once, but as you progress, even if you've identified that vital few, that one thing that you're going to be um, about, that less that is better, it seems like lots and lots of new trivial menus keep popping up. And, and how does one sort of create a regular habit of, of analyzing these things and eliminating them? Or is it about not allowing them in your life to begin with? I think that in, in today's world, you have to have a regular cadence, a new set of skills, a new set of habits. None of them individually are like revolutionary. It's not like you say, man, I've never heard of the idea of prioritizing my day or week or quarter. Like that, that's not new. It's just in this environment, essentialism has the power of relevancy because we live in a, an era where culturally it's the, the undisciplined pursuit of more is so normalized. It, it, it is, it's like, uh, it's ubiquitous. It's monopoly view almost. So I don't know if sure you've heard the phrase, but the idea of fish discover water last. The idea is that that which is most familiar is most invisible. And I think that non-essentialism or this, this just do everything. And if you can fit it all in, you can have it all. And, uh, you know, busyness epidemic, all of this is so normal. Nobody really even notices it. It's just what everybody does and everybody's doing it. So that's what you have to carry on doing. Essentialism is the antidote to that. It's the response to it. So the disciplined pursuit of less but better is, you know, has this, it, it's not like there's like, there's lots of true principles. There's lots of true leadership ideas that could all help us. But this, I believe, is the one that's most relevant now. Has that, And so it's not just what are all the keys on the leadership competency keyboard. It's what's the right chord for this particular time. And I think that becoming an essentialist is that relevant approach to leadership now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we sort of started at the end or at least the middle or the, the regular pursuit of the journey. And I, I want to do, um, for listeners that may not totally not be familiar with the idea of how we begin this whole process, um, I, I want to start back at the beginning, even though we begin it at begun at the end, um, which, which may be a very essentialist thing, right? I was, I was looking for the less but better. I'm like, okay, I, I buy in this. I'm working on this. Um, I told you offline since reading the book, we've made a lot of different changes in my own um, schedule in life. But for those who are beginning the journey, how do we do that? How do we determine what is the less we're going to pursue, what the vital few is versus all of these many? Let me suggest a few things that I think make up the cadence of creating space to explore what is essential. Uh, I recommend uh, people listening to this, they could even pause this for just a moment, go on their calendars and schedule a personal quarterly offsite. That is 
one day every 90 days to just think about the bigger picture, to review the last 90 days, what happened, what's the news, what are the trends, what are the good things, what's the bad things, all of that. Celebrate the wins mostly and then come up with the two or three big goals for the next 90 days. And, uh, and that's one thing you can do. Secondly, you can then hold a 20 minutes ish weekly planning session in which you're really saying, look again, what are like the top three to six things that I need to do? Maybe three things personally, three things professionally. And you have a weekly design session and you treat each week like a prototype, uh, for living the life that you want to live, living an essential life that makes a contribution that matters. And it's, it's, again, it's about the cadence. It's a disciplined pursuit. So you're not going to get it right. So you're going to mess up. You know, one week you do it, then the next week you don't, but then you get back on and you get right again. Uh, and, and then I, I recommend daily creating um, a graphical essential list, which means it's very simple. Even saying it's graphical overstates the idea. But if you take a piece of paper and, you know, you say the first item, the most important item on my to-do list, my essential list of six, you limit yourself to around that number, is, is, gonna, is going to be like a f- more important than the next item, significantly more important. And so something I found helpful, I take a normal piece of paper and I will make like the top third of the sheet is the top item. And so that just, it's the idea of a big rock. This is the big essential thing that I want to get done today. And by visually showing that it's the most important thing, it helps me to justify and keep coming back to that item. Instead of treating it as an equal task, level of importance with all the other tasks. That's, the, that's I think, one of the problems with a to-do list. Fine, make the list, but then eventually you've got to discern out of that list. Some things are really important and some things are really not important in comparison. And if you spend a whole day doing all the little not important things, you still make some progress. It's still not nothing. But those small things often do not add up to the importance of that one thing that you knew would really move the needle. So, so I think, you know, so the first third of the paper, piece of paper is one item. The second third of the piece of paper is two items. And then the final third of the piece of paper is three items. Do you see how that looks visually? Can you yeah. imagine that? So these are the six essentials. These are like the big rocks of the day. And I find it very liberating to, uh, to have it visually aware in that way. It helps me to feel motivated to keep hitting on the thing that, that maybe I don't really want to be doing, but I know it's the essential thing. No, I and get I, it done. I really like that. I'm, I'm actually encouraged to make a, uh, like a PDF that I can print out. Um, so li- actually listeners, if you're listening, well, I'll actually go ahead and do that and I'll put it on the, the show notes for this episode. But, um, that's actually pretty cool. I, I, it actually makes me want to code an app that instead of the default to do list app that's on my phone, um, it, it is that one bi- big one. Um, the question though, so on that, are, are, do you find that these are mostly recurring tasks? You know, so, you know, I know you spend a lot of, uh, obviously writing is a big part of, of what you do. Does that mean that there's a certain number of words that you're trying to write or do something that pushes the book forward every single day? Or are these decided on a day by day basis, what the most important tasks are? Well, it grows out of the quarterly, the personal quarterly offsite. Um, it, it 
it, 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 you know, so, so it doesn't, it does adjust because I, and I think there's a principle here that's helpful to explain, which is there's two ways of thinking about focus. One way is focus as a noun, meaning it's the thing that you have, you've taken a picture of the thing you're trying to do, uh, and you just have focused on it. And there's some real benefits to that sort of focus. But, but I think that there's another kind of focus that's equally as important, and that's focus as a verb. And that's why, again, this cadence of prioritization and, and becoming disciplined in, in creating that process um, and, and, and committing to a schedule is so important because it's, it's actually about adjusting your focus you know, day to day, week to week, quarter to quarter. This is what makes sure that overall – Despite getting lost along the way, we we get to where we really want to get to. We invest in the right things over time is because we keep adjusting. Uh, so the metaphor I love for this is the idea of the, uh, the uh, of a, just going on a plane. right? So a plane from point A to point B from San Francisco to New York, for example, is off track 90% of the time. Uh, the reason it gets to where it's supposed to when it's supposed to is it keeps coming back on track. Uh, and, and, and indeed, I think you can go boldly on this. That, that in a sense, there's only two kinds of people. Um, the, the first is the group, you know, it's the, it's the people who are lost. And, and the second group uh, are the people who know they are lost. And I, I think that being an essentialist means being in the second category. So that you you admit it. It's It's... You know, being an essentialist isn't like having it all figured out. You, 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 don't, you don't try and become a perfectionist. That's a very non-essentialist idea, actually. I mean, a perfectionist is someone who thinks they have to do everything perfectly now. In fact, that's almost, that's almost you know, definition. It's quintessential non-essentialist is to believe they have to do everything perfect now. What, what, what an essentialist believes is the right things at the right time for the right reasons. They wake up in the morning and they are willing to admit, I'm not sure what it is. So because they admit it, they know what to do next, which is explore what's essential. Figure it out. Do your daily plan. Do your weekly plan. Do your personal quarterly offsite. They don't have any supervision that non-essentialists don't. I don't think that's what it is. I think they have greater humility to face it, not to pretend. I I think that's a huge distinction because a lot of people – look at uh, essentialism or look at the people who really are able to have that discipline pursuit of less that have that focus and look at them like they're they have some sort of superpower right that that they've figured out and have it all together in such a way that then I'll never be able to do and I think it's really interesting to hear from you know from the essentialist himself this idea that you're you're probably always going to be making these course corrections you're always going to be making this incremental progress um, but it's about, that's why it's a discipline pursuit instead of just a discipline. If I'm get, if I'm guessing at the reasons for the subtitle properly. Exactly. It's the pursuit. It's, it's, it's sort of either the discipline pursuit of the essential, or you'll end up by default falling into the undisciplined pursuit of the non-essential. The, the, so the, it's just, this is why it's this willingness to admit it quickly all the time. In fact, I don't know what's next. What's the right thing to do next? So I think if there's a difference between me and other people, especially now, it's that I spend more time doing that. That that you know, more time asking the question, well, what's the next big thing? Where should I be going next? I mean, I'll give you an example of this real time, right? Is um 
uh, I, I'm not writing another book. It made me think of it because you asked a question, well, you know, I suppose, do you write every, so many words a day? And, and it just sort of made me smile because I don't write any words a day right now <laughs> at all. Um, and, and I haven't for a while. And that even saying it out loud, even reflecting on it surprises me at some level and makes me think, oh, that is, that is a funny thing after having spent so long writing, so long researching and thinking so long, you know, with the intent of writing a book that can make an impact and a difference in the world to, to now look at it and realize, yeah, that's not what I feel when I go through this process, these deep reflections, uh, and explorations of what's essential. I have come to the conclusion that that isn't the thing I should do next, that I shouldn't write the next book. I'm sure there'll be a book some point, but it's not what I should be doing now, that there's something else that's a higher contribution. And it took me a while, uh, like I mean a couple of years, so the book's been out a couple of years now. And so and so it took me a while of knowing that deep down that I shouldn't really write another book. So I'm still playing with ideas always in the background, you know, many, many different titles over those two years. And, and the agent wants the, the book next and, and, uh, and all that. But it took me till much more recently, probably two, three months ago at the most, to make the trade-off. Because saying something's essential, figuring out what's essential is clearly an important part of this equation, but it's only the first piece of it. And the second piece is to eliminate what's not essential or to make the, to make the trade-off. And so it's all very well saying, you know, I, uh, we started off on family subject, personal things, right? To say I want to have a priority relationship with my wife, that, that is cheap if I don't make the second step, which is actual trade-offs, not going on, uh, you know, a, a, an op, a trip that sounds interesting, exciting to me, but I know will push my travel over what is reasonable for the month what will help for family. It's all very well me saying my, my relationship with my children is important, but am I willing to make trade-offs in the morning to go and play tennis with them, for example, or, or to have them come with me on, on, on business trips, which is what I do now. Uh, it's the trade-off that, makes, that gives teeth to, to what we're identifying as most important. And that's the second principle. So first is to explore What's essential? Second is to make trade-offs so we can eliminate the non-essentials. These are the these are the, the two principles. And it was that with the book. I know I'm giving different examples here, but that was it was when I decided not to do the book, really put it aside, not try and do both, that suddenly the thing I'm really working on is suddenly had had momentum. So uh, and it sort of breakthrough. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask what that thing you're working <laughs> on is. Yeah. But I'm not going to tell you. Okay, that's fine. But, I, I, well, but here's the thing: is it should become obvious in time. Yeah, it, it, it won't. It, it's it's probably not much of a secret even now for anyone who's super observant. But I'm not trying to keep it a secret. I just, I, it's just so early. I don't want to. You know, sometimes there's a sometimes by announcing things early, you get a little bit of reward before you've done anything. Like, oh, that sounds good. And it's as if you've done it. We haven't done anything yet. So I want to get on and make this thing happen. But I feel so clear. Now, it was hard to make the trade-off, but I feel so clear now that the path I'm on is a higher path of contribution than if I'd just done the next book. I, I am not, I'm not 80% sure about that. I really am like 100% sure about that. And that doesn't mean I'll be successful. I just know it's the right path. And, and that's, I, I, I like this because, it, sharing this, because it 
I think illustrates the spirit of essentialism, which is, it's not about saying no for the sake of it. It's not just saying no so we feel a little less stressed, although it has that advantage. It's saying yes to the most important contribution. It's getting to the point, and it's hard one to get to this point, where you're sure this is the right path. I'm going to proceed, proceed with this path. Um, it, to use the business example, it's, it's Steve Jobs saying, no, I'm going to stop work on the iPad so I can do the iPhone first. You know, the most business leaders, I think, by well, not just I think, you can observe it for sure. Most companies just did both. You know, they, uh, HP created the, the touch interface, uh, you know, PC. It was really actually a very pretty machine they put together years ago, much before the iPad. But they were doing so many other products at the same time that, that at HP, even today, there are people who just don't even know that they released that product. They released it and killed it. And nobody even knows about it inside the company. This is the undisciplined pursuit of more. This is what happens. And, and so you have, it, it, there's no point talking about focus. There's no point talking about, uh, you know, prioritization unless you're willing to not do good things you really want to do. Hmm. That's the, that's the test. That's the cost. You know, and it, it's funny, I was going to ask, you know, how, how do we, cause I think the other thing that people struggle with is this idea of just how to say no when other people want to take over your schedule. But I, I mean, I guess the answer is that when you have that clarity, no almost becomes easy because of how much yes takes. Yeah, it certainly becomes easier, right? It's, and, and, and I tell you what I think is what I do think becomes easier once you've made the trade-off. Because the trade-off doesn't tend to happen when you say no to someone. The trade-off is an internal battle. And that, that, with the big trade-offs in my life, that's certainly been true. It's, it's not, and by the way, I have like the best book agent anywhere. So nothing I'm saying should in any way sound, sound, uh, sound negative toward, towards him. I, I love working with him. Um, but saying no to him is not the hardest part. The hardest part is getting serious clarity about the yes. This is what I'm doing. And then, yeah, it's a little bit awkward, but it's a natural outgrowth of that to then be able to say, look, the big yes is this. I've got to go do this. This is going to be the, 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 the make or break thing. And it's already happening. I mean, I'm telling you, the speed with which the big project I'm working on now is moving over the last two or three months is, to me, breathtaking. And it's and, and for two years I've known about it. I've had it in my mind to do it, but I've been trying to sort of do both, straddle it. And and by removing it, suddenly all the mental energy that shifts, all of the uh, the emotional commitment shifts, and suddenly you, 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 the, the things just start happening, almost blossoming in front of your eyes. Surprises, and you and it's not just it's not just that. It's that. Every opportunity that comes your way, you see through the lens of the thing you're trying now to pursue. And, and all of this just reminds me of the idea of priority and the word priority, right? It comes into the English language in the 1400s. It's singular. What does it mean? It's, it, of course, it has to be singular. It's the, the, the first or prior thing. And it stays singular for like the next 500 years. And so it's only in the Industrial Revolution that somehow it becomes really, uh, you know, pluralized and, 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 you know, ubiquitously used that way. Priorities. But what does it mean? How can you have very, very many, very first or before all other things things? To me, that's, to me, that's a form of madness. 
And it's what it, it's what's been given to it. This is what non-essentialism is saying. It's saying if you can do it all, if you just fit it all in, then you can have it all. But that's just not even it's just not true. You know, it has the inconvenience of being like a lie. So uh, so we have to get back to reality where it's like you can you've got to figure out what the priority is. You've got to make trade-offs so that you can put energy into that, so that you can actually see tremendous progress in the in the few things that matter most. Yeah, no, that makes a, a lot of sense. And I, it reminds me of a Jim Collins quote around the idea that if you have, I think he says more than three priorities, you don't have any priorities. But I, I, I love in a sense, it feels like you would answer him back. If you have more than one, you don't have a priority. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't mean, I don't want to oversimplify the conversation. It doesn't mean that people can't pursue multiple things or, or think that multiple things or people are important. That is also a reality. And it, and and. That is one of the tension, the, the, the tension, the key tensions we all face is that there's all different people that we want to serve and all different things that we want to do to make a difference. But by definition, you can't have more than one priority by definition. And it starts to be insane to talk beyond that. Uh, you can have multiple goals. You can have multiple important things. You just can't have multiple priorities. So it's weird after this, because then you, every time you go to say the word priorities, you feel weird. Because <laughs> you don't have like another word to use, yeah. But uh, but I still think it is important at any given moment. Yeah, you know, we can. You can multitask. Yep, you can. But you cannot multifocus. Hmm. If I try to multitask on this in this conversation right now, right? If I if I'm trying to check email, you're trying to do that. So we're trying to, you know, I mean, of course that stuff's happened before. Yeah, maybe you are. Maybe I am. But here's what we can't do. As soon as you ask me like a question that's that's different or curious or something, oh, I got to be totally present for that. I would naturally stop anything else I was doing because because I can't be focused on two different things. Hmm. And um, yeah, I, I mean, actually, I just just riff on this for a little bit because somebody just shared with me. I didn't know this that the word focus. Do you know what the root word of the of the word focus means? Do you know I, where it comes from? I don't. I didn't either. And I love this. It comes from originally, it, it comes from the word half, half, you know, like in a home, a half yeah. around the fireplace. Yeah. Focus originally, and you think about the half and what that place uh, was to society. So, so imagine this is pre-central heating, pre-electricity, pre-light you know, pre-electric light. So past, you know, past as soon as the sun is down, this is the place of warmth and the place of light and the place that family meets and spends their time. And this is what we mean by focus. I find it beautiful. I, I think it, it, it goes to the, the, the spirit of essentialism, which, which to me is you've got to embrace essentialism first in yourself, in a per like, You've got to want it for you, not as, a, not as some corporate idea that we can apply. It does work there, but you don't start there. You've got to actually de de determine, is this relevant for me right now? Does this gonna, is this going to bless my life? Is this going to make an impact to the people that matter most to me? And once you make that decision and start becoming an essentialist deep down personally, then it starts to then affect the way you think about everything else you're doing. 
think about the way you would you know, interact with other people, how you would lead other people. And it becomes relevant professionally and it becomes relevant in, in corporate leadership and so on. But it starts with the individual. It starts with this idea, I think, of half. Yeah, I love that. That's a great picture. That's a really cool picture. So again, to those that are listening, the book is Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Whether you're on that pursuit or whether you want to begin that pursuit, it's a great read. And I know you won't tell us what you're working on now, but we do have five questions about you that we ask all guests. Um, Sort of a lightning round of questions. If you're ready for that, we'll dive in. Let's do it. So the first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? Well... The first one that comes to mind can't be the best advice I've really ever received, but, but we were just talking about books, so it's in my mind. Um, somebody years ago told me, to, they said that I was giving them a book idea, and they said, uh, they said don't, uh, just don't write a book that nobody wants to read. And that really stayed with me, because of course that is what happens. It's like, whatever, right? different stats, different people, there's 400,000 new books going to be published in United States this year ish, uh, you know, all these ebooks on Amazon, every the vast majority of them don't get read. So here are a lot of people who want to make a difference in the world. And I don't doubt any of their motives. We can just give them great motives, but somehow it doesn't work. And his advice to me just stayed with me. And as a, as a metaphor for all sorts of things in life, don't, don't, you know, don't, uh, don't try and sell a product that nobody wants to buy. Uh, don't, don't try and, and try and serve someone in a way they don't—they're not interested in being served. You've got to—you've got to figure that out first. And so I think it's to do with really getting in the mind of the people that you're trying to serve, figuring out, exploring what really is essential to them, so that you're not wasting time doing a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter to the people you're trying to make a difference to. That makes a lot of sense. So the second question, and I know that we're recording this on your one media day a month, but what does an average non-media day, what does an average day look like for you? Um, it's pretty simple. Uh, I, um, I mean, there's two kinds of days that I, I have mostly. One day is travel days uh, where I'm going to a keynote at a major conference, and it can be, I mean, it can be small groups of, of CEOs or executives um, and all the way up to you know, thousands of people, 5,000 people. Uh, it's it, a major conference. And uh, when I'm doing that, the whole thing's back to back. I mean, there's a very designed effortless plan of execution for those events. Uh, you know, I'm picked up by a driver, take me to the airport. Every, everything is just the same, as same as possible. I uh, have a child come with me or, or my wife. We try and always do that. And... Um, you know, go to the same hotel, go to the keynote, do the, do the, do the event. It's high, high pressure, right? Cause it has to be a home run. You've got to make it right. Uh, and then there's space, especially now that I have children coming with me, we go swimming, we go try and do an activity, go to a, it's much funner to travel with them than not. That's what I've found. When I travel without them, you know, you really get into a routine that's almost just boring. Uh, and every hotel becomes the same and every city becomes the same because you're not really out there. But when I'm with them, we, we go and make memories uh, and then and then come home. I, mean, the, I enjoy them. I enjoy the travel days. I don't I don't find travel a burden too much of the time. Uh, and then when I'm at home, um, the day starts early. Uh, I mean, right now it starts with starts with going, uh, you know, I mean, we 
there's a few different activities there. There's, there's getting the children to do their music. There's I uh, read certain wisdom literature in the in, in the mornings at scripture. Uh, we, we do that as a family. We eat breakfast. We go to play tennis. Uh, two or three of my children who are really interested in that right now. So we go to, to go play tennis. We um, uh, there's there's a there's a quiet hour where we just try and you know get the planning and the organize you know think through the the, the, the things we want to do. Uh, I have a home office. It's outside of my home. It's where I wrote the book. It's a place of, it's very simple, very quite a small office, minimalist in design. It's, it's really a place of joy for me. It's a very, very calm place. Uh, and that's where, I, that's where I do most of my, my work from, from here. Eat lunch with my wife, and we're home at school, I have two children. Gosh, I'm giving a long answer to this, aren't I? Uh, and uh, so we'll go to lunch, not every day, but often. And um, in the evenings, not always, of course, but tend to be in service in some way um, to uh, to serve serving the church in various various ways, and, uh, and then then there's also time at the end of the day to uh, to to relax, to write my journal, uh, talk with talk with Anna. So it's normally an hour or two to try and get uh, to 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 that. Haven't haven't missed writing my journal for the last. I don't know, five and a half years, I think now, um, but have hardly missed a day in 10 years. That's one of my favorite moments of the day. You really get to celebrate every win, every essential thing learned from the day. Uh, and uh, it's a great moment of pause for me. It takes a while now. It, is, it tends to take half an hour or more, but, uh, but I don't regret that. I, I love, love the way that expands my uh, memory. My memory is terrible uh, without it. Uh, you can test yourself. Everyone listening can test themselves too. Can can you tell me without looking at a calendar what you did two weeks ago today? Hmm. Okay. So two weeks ago today, uh, at this exact time, two weeks ago today, I would have been recording a podcast. I think with Srini Rao, but that's because I only record on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons. So outside of that, I would be clueless if I didn't know it was that time. Okay, so give me give me two weeks ago Wednesday. <laughs> I know two weeks ago Wednesday. I honestly couldn't. I mean, I, I I have the benefit of teaching classes, but in between those classes, I have no idea. I'm amazed when I if if I don't write a day in my journal, and then catch up the next day, which still counts to me as not having missed a day if I if I've made an entry. I'm amazed that even in 24 hours, the details I can't remember. If I write it the same day, there's so much more. It's so much richer. Even a day later, I'm like, oh, what did I even do? What was the what was followed? What did I? What, what were the things that really mattered to me that day? I'm amazed. So maybe it's more me, but I, I find that to be have, writing it down. I mean, I can turn to a page years and years ago now, and it's all there. It all floods back to me. Um, so anyway, there we go. Yeah. So that's schedule schedule at home, schedule at schedule away. Yeah, double. double no, I, I think that's great. And, and, and you mentioned, oh, you might be giving a long answer, but I think it was great because you, you described what I think a lot of listeners would say was their ideal day. They just can't figure out how to make it happen. And it's a testament to the power of essentialism. Uh, third question, what are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading a few things. I'm reading uh, one book I'm reading is a book called Let It Go. Um, the subtitle is a true story of tragedy and forgiveness. It's an amazing story it's by, by Chris Williams. Chris Williams, 
uh, wife and two children were killed by a drunk driver. And it's about his journey in learning, not just learning to forgive, but forgiving really right from the moment it happened. Uh, and I'm just very touched by that. I, I see in it, I do see in it, uh, some of the deeper threads of essentialism because the whole idea of letting it go, letting go things that, that, that would otherwise, would otherwise, I mean, that this is some non-essential stuff just kind of slowly suffocates us. But, you know, but some, some things, some non-essentials I think can destroy us. Uh, and, and in this case, I think if he hadn't, if he hadn't been forgiven, this man, that would be the rest of his life, would just be consumed with the, with the anger or the hate. Or the, and, uh, and so I, I've been very inspired by his story and learning. You know, we say that phrase, let it go to people. Oh, just let it go. <laughs> How do you do that? And he is, he's, he's really, you know, I think anybody, I think just about anybody could benefit from, from reading it. Yeah. What do you believe that most people don't? I believe in almost breathtaking ability within each of us to make a contribution so much greater than we tend to make. And the price is letting go of the good non-essential things we've been doing in the past. There is a, an, a clear sacrifice not just with what I'm going to do, you know, sacrifice by investing in something, but in just letting go of something that used to be really good, uh, maybe was the goal in the past, but to do it to let go. I, I remember when I was at Stanford, one of my professors began a lecture by saying, uh, goals of a theory that work. And he meant by that that they share all these different theories, all these different ideas uh, that work sometimes, you know, that are a model that explain a lot of phenomenon, but often don't work. And he was saying, when you set goals, they really work. Like, this is the thing. When people write down a goal, they're going to pursue, when they visualize, when they think about it, when they talk about it, when they, keep, when they do that, the power is a tremendous in us to bring forth that thing. But what he was also saying, which is the, the second half of his lesson, which has been, continues to be profound to me, uh, I continue to have to really learn a lot about this, is that the goals are the theory that work too well. And that's what we have to be careful about, is that once we set goals, sometimes we set goals and we even forget we've made them. You know, somewhere in our psyche, somewhere back, we committed that we would do something. We would, we would achieve something or we'd go somewhere or we, something. And then we never let it go because we never knew, we, we, didn't, we barely even remember it's in there. I've had that happen to me a couple of times and now I'm more conscious of it and so I can catch myself earlier. But I've, I've pursued a couple of things in my life where it was just because years and years ago I had set the intent and then it worked on autopilot. It just kept, keeps going. And then even 20 years later, you then finally do the thing that you've been intending to do all those years, but maybe you shouldn't be doing it anymore. <laughs> that, that's happened to me. It has happened to me even relatively recently in my life. And I think, wow, I need to learn how to 
allow an old goal to disappear. For it just to be an intent, a desire from before. I'll tell you, share a funny example of this. This, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed about this in a way at some level. It's kind of fun, fun embarrassment. But, but I remember years ago, someone in my family had said to me along the lines, we must have been watching a show or something. And they were like, wouldn't it be so cool to have a, a like a real stormtrooper outfit? You know, like, wouldn't that be so cool? And, and somehow the combination of, first of all, that is kind of cool. And secondly, being someone saying it so boldly, like I just, I was like, wow, yes. Having a stormtrooper outfit would be really cool. And I'm telling you, like, this is now 30 years that this idea has been back there in my head somewhere that that's just a cool thing. And, and I mean, of course you can buy these now, right? They cost, cost like a thousand bucks, but you can buy them. And finally I got to the point is coming up to Halloween here. And I, and I was like, are you just going to finally do this? I mean, you can just go and do it. It's not that hard to do it. And I went all the way to actually trying this thing on because I thought like this would be fun and all that. And in trying it on, I had one of these because I'd had in my mind this idea. This had already been percolating back in my mind for a variety of reasons about these old, outdated goals. And I um, and I, I stood there with it, looking in the mirror with it at the store, going, you, there, "There's no part of this you want anymore." You know, like yeah. this is just a childhood thing, and that doesn't make it bad in a way i shouldn't be embarrassed about it but it was nice to be able to go some calls are just okay to have us to, to let go and i i think that that's very important i would think there are people listening who know just what i'm talking about and it might not be the stormtrooper outfit right that's the silly example but it might be other really important things you know the idea that they they need to marry a certain kind of person a certain kind of hair a certain kind of personality or or that they need to run a certain kind of business, a certain kind of thing. And actually, they're outdated. They don't even want that anymore. You know, there's some, it was somebody else's desire. Maybe it was to c- pursue a career that their father or somebody wanted them to do. You know what I'm saying. Culture creates all these things of what we should be and should do. And I think there's enormous liberation in having a storm tr- looking at yourself <laughs> in a stormtrooper outfit moment. Yeah. Going, yeah, that's cute. I have no I have no interest and no need to buy this. You know? Yeah. It's nice. It's nice. Otherwise we can be running around with with goals that are, are barely even our own anymore. So the only problem with this is now now I have the desire to go try on my stormtrooper <laughs> costume. But I uh, I won't I won't buy it. I'll just snap a few selfies <laughs> and then and then put it and then return it. But um <laughs> That's no, awesome. And if it works for you, if you think it's great, you should do it. Okay, that's it's fair. In the moment, in the moment, there was nothing for me. Well, and I think it speaks to the, that idea, that core of essentialism. This idea that not every goal that you have in your life is a goal worth pursuing. Um, that the real task is in figuring out the trade offs and figuring out the ones that that are. I think that's great. And and the, the stormtrooper analogy is a pretty um, a, levity, a levity one to explain it all, but it's a powerful one. Um, our, our final question, if I may, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In, in your view, what makes someone a leader? When I, when I was writing Essentialism, I didn't have as a goal or, or a strong intent, I want to write a book about leadership. Um, but Despite that, I do believe that essentialism is 
sort of almost puts the teeth back into leadership because for the last 20 years, we've, you know, we've been hearing a lot about uh, collaborative leadership, a particular kind of leadership, a very open leadership. And, and of course, I think that is really positive, especially if you're going from a very exclusive, closed, uh, cold leadership, then it's great to move beyond that and, and, and move into this more open, collaborative, creative, um, interactive kind of approach to leadership. But there's also a downside to that journey if you over if you if if you go too far with it, because it becomes and I don't have a great name for this. I used this term for someone the other day, and they really resonated with it. But a sort of inclusivism, where it's it's not just being inclusive, which I think is a good, really important principle, but it becomes like the end goal, which is everyone has to be involved in every decision and everyone has to be on every meeting and everyone has to be in every email chain and, and on every conference call. And, and it just becomes this exhausting mess. And it's a quite, so there is a, a slightly dark side to this idea of collaboration and openness and so on. The, so <laughs> Where people then the decision doesn't get made, and you sort of worry about hurting someone's feeling that you don't get on with it. And I think that essentialism helps to get us back into this place. No, it's not noism. It's not about saying no and being cold and being harsh. It's not that, but it is about working together to get really clear about what we're going to do and what we're not going to do, and what the right people are and what the right people aren't. And you build this thing together so that you can build something, a unified whole that does something special. And that takes, among other things, it takes in the end making trade-offs, in the end making some judgment calls, in the end determining you won't try and do everything for everyone all the time. But that isn't the strategy. That's good. That's good. So the book again is essentialism. If you honestly, it's a, it's a manual for how to start to, to figure those things out, how to start to decide what needs to be say no to what stormtrooper outfits need to stay in the closet and what to really focus on. It's about the disciplined pursuit of less, which also happens to be the subtitle. If that's a journey that you're on or want to take, I highly encourage you to check the book out. In the meantime, Greg, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thanks for having me. 